Welcome to HP Lovecast Presents Fragments, our new podcast posting on the third Sunday of each month. In each episode, we will present a discussion of a story as an addendum to our HP Lovecast or an independent discussion of a selected story. We may also interview creators such as writers and artists in the horror and or horror fantasy genres. I am Michelle Brittany, editor of the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space and the book review editor at the Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics. I write on all things pop culture with special emphasis on mummies, tiki, and horror. I am Nicholas Dyack, a pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, industrial music, horror studies, and the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. Michelle and I co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also for McFarland. Uh, this episode's musical intro and outro was composed by John316 and is an excerpt from the song Eternal Sin Offering. Check our show notes for a link for the complete song. In today's episode, we'll be continuing our exploration of manga artist Gao Tanabe's adaptations of H.P. Lovecraft's short stories by looking at Tanabe's The Nameless City, included in H.P. Lovecraft's The Hound and Other Stories, published by Dark Horse Comics. Please note there will be spoilers ahead. The Nameless City Plot Synopsis The Nameless City opens on an adventurer out in the middle of the Arabian Desert, finding himself at the entrance of a nearly hidden ancient city. Lore amongst the Arabs is that the city is cursed, but our unidentified protagonist is not deterred. He finds an entry point into a low-ceilinged temple and investigates, descending a small staircase. As he progresses down a long corridor, he doesn't notice that his torch has gone out because of a fluorescent glow at the end, the far end of a hallway lighting his path. He notices the hallway is lined with wooden cabinets with glass fronts, and when he gazes upon the contents, he sees indescribable reptilian creatures dressed in finery, jewels, and shiny metals. The hunched adventurer continues on where he views a, quote, pageant of mural history, which recorded the ancient civilization included in the last panel, the tearing apart of a primitive-looking man. He passes through an open doorway, and before him is a stone staircase descending into a bright, misty portal. As our brave protagonist ponders the significance of what he has seen, he hears a definite sound, which precedes an eerie, strong wind coming through the temple hallway and traveling down into the portal. He is barely able to gain a tight handhold back in the hallway as the wind whips past, trying to pull him back into the portal. The heavily laden doors close and the man is left in complete darkness as he ascends back to the desert surface. The Nameless City was written and published in 1921. It is considered the first story establishing the Cthulhu mythos and includes mention of Abdul al-Hazred, who would later be identified as the author of the Necronomicon. Lovecraft stated in his letters that this story was inspired the, by the last line of Lord Dunsany's story, The Probable Adventure of the Three Literary Men. However, it has been argued that Lovecraft was inspired by Edgar Rice Burroughs at the Earth's core. 
The Nameless City was one of Lovecraft's favorite stories. So let's move into discussion. All right. So, Michelle, what are your overall impressions of the story? Well, I think um, given this is like one of Lovecraft's earliest stories, we're already seeing him establish uh, elements and tropes uh, to stories that would follow. Um, Particularly, probably the, the worst is him telling rather than showing uh in his stories so i think what um i think uh tanabi brings to this story is the visuals that were missing uh within lovecraft's original short story uh because of that i actually i read the nameless city a quite a long time ago found it really overwordy and um sometimes confusing uh with regards to where exactly the action was uh, and where our character was. So I think that uh, Tanabi's visual manga was a big help to kind of sort out the progression of the story for me. Um, At the same time, Tanabi really focuses in on the key elements of this being exciting, a tense driven uh, adventure story, which you know, is prior to what we get further on, which is definitely more cosmic horror. So for that, I actually really enjoyed uh, Tanabi's adaptation. At the same time, I felt that there were elements and themes in the Lovecraft story that are downplayed in the adaptation. Um, And I imagine that we'll, we'll get to those during our discussion. So I think that there is a little bit lost in the adaptation, but overall, uh, definitely a a very good adaptation. Um, It gave me a new appreciation for Lovecraft story, and um, I went back and revisited it and actually enjoyed it much, much more because I had some visuals behind it. Nick, what were your initial impressions of the story? Um. Overall, for a, for a Lovecraft story, it's it's decent. It's not one of his bests. It's not one of his worst, you know. And it's probably because it is such a an early story in his uh, his bibliography. And in fact, uh, I think it's early enough to show that yeah, he's definitely you know uh, telling instead of showing. And I think he has some limits in his imagination. And I think that's where uh, Tanabe's artwork actually comes in and kind of saves the day. Uh, there's actually a scene in here I think best uh, exemplifies this is, you know, when he's he first gets to the uh, underground portion of the city and he sees these coffins and Lovecraft's original text just describes them as, you know, polished glass and wood. And you're like, I'm in an alien city that like predates mankind and it's it's glass and wood? It doesn't seem that, you know, uh, exotic, alien, or anything. You know, and of course, you know, in later Lovecraft stories, you'd have, like, meteors and Cthulhu statues made out of, you know, stone and rock that has never been discovered before. And it adds to this, you know, uh, alien aspect of it. And, you know, in this story, it's, it's polished wood and polished glass, and it's not that exciting. But, you know, uh, the sequence art in uh, Tanabe's adaptation, you see it's it's very grotesque looking. It looks like uh, there's like mummified uh, bodies on it, and it's a bit more more detailed. So, if anything, this adaptation, you know, one, it has the, you know, the nice uh, visual quality that Tanabe brings. And two, I think it, it tries to 
make the best out of the limitations that Lovecraft was writing in at the time. That's a great point, Nick. I noted uh, in the original story how I felt that Lovecraft had a limitation of his knowledge of history related to, it seems like it jumps from ancient Egyptian history, which is, you know, 3000 BC versus him going to prehistoric times with the cosmic horror. There doesn't seem to be anything in between. And I would almost say that he does this jump the shark type of situation, which doesn't lend well to the story because I don't think he's established a good historical reference with regards to this ancient city. I think that Tanabe realized that with this adaptation, and so he does try to basically downplay those historical references throughout the entire story because in Lovecraft's story, it is problematic. So that was a, a, a good observation, Nick. I, I would say, yeah, Tanabe downplays the history and just tries to upplay the the fact that this is just a, you know, a timeless ancient city that's, you know, alien and cosmic. I know that folks kind of see this as a proto-Mountains of Madness type story. In fact, what uh, Lovecraft attempts to accomplish here, he accomplishes much better detail in Mountains of Madness. You know, you got a hidden, isolated city that, you know, is far from mankind, deciphering murals, you know, aliens at the end and everything. So it seems like kind of like it's a, a trial run at doing what he's going to do eventually. Yeah, I think you're right there because in this particular story, uh, Lovecraft is trying to basically place his mythos within prehistory. Referring back to Lovecraft's story, he's actually placing these reptilian creatures in the Paleozoic um, time period rather than some alien cosmic um, horror that we actually see in the Mountains of Madness. So I think he's playing around with, you know, establishing what his, his mythos is going to be. At least on the upside, though, uh, for Tanabe, he... You know, brings in the visual cues that make this an actual very fun story. So, you know, while it's not very centered on history or anything, instead I think it's kind of centered on, you know, that Indiana Jones, Britton Fraser, mummy type uh, uh, setting. <laughs> our feeling, our, you know, the fun archaeology that, you know, that we all want to aspire to have, but we all know that true archaeology is lots of reading and working for other people and digging things up. <laughs> I do think what is interesting in this story is that Lovecraft is already looking at some sort of aquatic origin, which is something that is pursued much more deeply in At the Mountains of Madness, and particularly uh, Tanabe picks that up in those chapters 16 through 18, where he gives kind of an overarching cosmic origins and things like that, and where the... uh, Aquatic does take on a a definite more dominant theme and visual in that story. Okay, I'm going to make a really bad joke here on the subject of aquaticness. I think as a good segue about what I'm going to make. There is one thing about this story that bugs me to no end. And it's ridiculous 
it's it's in this it's in the manga it's in the original story it's when our hero spends literally five hours crab walking down a flight of stairs in total darkness and of all the lovecraft's writings out there with monsters and aliens and cthulhu's and cults and magic or whatever this is the one thing that's always bugged me i can't see anyone walking on their hunched on their back that's going down a flight of stairs he looks at his watch five hours have passed the only way i can possibly describe that is if there's some sort of dreams of the witch house slash james chambers temporal playfulness going on here especially at the end of the manga that's actually there's a big deviation the uh, the original text just kind of fades to black while the manga adaptation our hero actually is able to you know, escape from everything and make it back to the desert, and it doesn't require him reverse crab walking five hours up a flight of stairs. It's just, I, I, you know, going back to probably limitations of Lovecraft here, I just don't think, I think he's writing something he thinks that sound cool, yeah, in total darkness for a long, brief, a a long uh, spat of time, and he's on his hinders, just because, you know, the critters I'm writing about are small, but it's, you know, when you actually sit to think about it, it's it's silly. It's not cosmic. It's not, um, you know, exotic or alien. It's just silly. And unfortunately, it's one of those things that kind of carries over to the manga as well. Yeah, I actually forgot about the fact that um, the time that passes during this story, because it's basically over one night when he's in this, temple city um that he is crab walking through <laughs> the other thing that i think i i felt was kind of um hard to imagine and that is his torch going out it sounds like his torch went out fairly soon after he descended the stairs and i'm like how can you walk around or hunch over for five hours and not have a, a torch for most of that time until you got down into that long corridor leading I, to this this bright, misty um, portal. I, I think they address that. He just says he got accustomed to it. Yeah. <laughs> it's that kind of uh, silly where, you know, the writing is not that strong and it's kind of a lot of throwaway stuff. But yeah, I think they address it by, you know, both in the manga and the text of saying, uh, you know, I think there's a glow or he just kind of got so used to seeing in the dark that he didn't even notice his torch was out. It is a bit on the silly side rather than the scary side. Yeah, and I guess that's a, a good question. Was this story scary? Was the original scary? And how about the manga? Was it scary? The manga is a little, a little bit more scarier than the story. And I think it's just because of, it's more scary because of the grotesque depictions in the frescoes. It's sort of like the difference of watching kind of like a, a gothic horror versus watching like a, a torture porn film, you know, something like um, a Saw or Hostel or whatnot, where Lovecraft is describing these frescoes and, and you know, like, oh, you know, there are people getting killed and, you know, that's, that's really bad. Uh, however, <laughs> you know, uh, Tanabe shows them in really really grotesque details you know there's actually like giant meat cleavers like hacking off people's arms and stuff um i guess in that regard it's scary for that sort of payoff some of the grotesque visually uh, all the stuff leading up to it i wouldn't consider scary it's more uh adventurous sort of like you know 
the aforementioned Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, you know, just kind of walking around through corridors. Oh, you know, there's a, a room for spiders and I got to stick my hand in and there's a lava pit and, you know, I got to crab walk for five hours. Uh, it seems more adventurous than anything. And, and that's okay. I'm actually okay with a, a little bit of a adventure in my Lovecraft. I mean, we see a little bit of it in, what's that? He did the Houdini story under the pyramids or something. But I guess the ultimate payoff here is, is it scary? I would say it's more grotesque and carnivalesque at especially at the end rather than scary Mm -hmm. yeah i would agree i i mean i think the only time that i really felt um a scariness was actually in the portal room that mist and looking down and having just basically instead of a black hole you've got this this white mist and you have no idea what might come up out of that mist I did find that was actually an interesting imagery that Lovecraft used initially and it's I don't think it's something that he used thereafter I think it was only in this story that he used a bright light as a way of conveying this sense of dread and um, danger this this horror that this unspeakable undescribable horror that that exists uh to plague the protagonist one of the things that um we do see further uh with Lovecraft's writing is the um unreliable narrator now we tend to have like an academic who is very intelligent who doesn't seem he seems to get off his game Uh, with regards to all that he's experiencing. Now, our protagonist, we don't have a name. Um, As far as we know, we don't know if he's academically inclined or anything like that. So does this lend to that unreliable narrator uh, trope that Lovecraft expands in further stories? Um. I don't think so. I I think, you know, it's pretty much, you know, cut and dry his experiences and everything. Although maybe at the end he goes mad a little bit. If anything, uh, I think he's probably a little bit more trustworthy. Uh, If you recall on our Mountains of Madness episode that we recorded earlier this month, I went into a big spiel about uh, Dyer's character. And I was uh, quoting uh, one of our colleagues, uh, uh, Howard David Ingham, who had a theory that... uh, like Dyer was uh, channeling uh, James Churchward, and he was just kind of BSing this interpretation of, you know, they're down in Antarctica, they come across these murals, and he's like, ah, I'm going to decipher this civilization just like that. And the feeling was, well, that could have just been, you know, BSed. And that sequence is, is here in uh, this story, but unlike um, The Mountains of Madness, I think it's a bit more trustworthy in this story, and this is for two reasons. The first one meaning the protagonist is by himself. He doesn't really have anyone to lie to. Um, in Mountains of Madness, uh, Danforth has a, not Dyer, has Danforth right there, so he's got an audience to say, aha, you know, <laughs> take a look at this. This is what this is saying. Aliens, ooh. Uh, we don't have that. We only have the narrator talking to himself and to us as a reader, and I think that adds a little actual bit of honesty to it. He doesn't have anyone to lie to. And I think the second reason is, in Tanabe's adaptation, the frescoes are a bit more 
accessible. They actually, they look like paintings that you can actually semiotically look at and decipher what's going on. I mean, when they show the picture of all these beasts hacking up people, there is no ifs, ands, or buts of what's going on there. You know, uh, unlike Mountains of Madness, and this isn't a demerit or anything, it's just that these were aliens painting all these murals, and they're a little bit more abstract, a little bit more, um, there's, you know, other art styles out there that are not readily accessible, that, you know, the protagonist in that was able to easily decipher. And you kind of have to roll your eyes and say, no, this is a little bit more abstract. This is from an alien race. You can't really glean all that information. But Tanabe's depiction of the frescoes in this story, I think, are accessible. They actually lend a little bit more to, okay, I can, I can maybe not 99% translate all this, but it's pretty obvious what's going on here. So I think, I think their narrator is actually... A little bit more on the more uh, reliable side in this story, but we don't really have a lot to work with. You know, we don't know if we're reading from a diary. We don't know if we're, uh, you know, what other medium we're coming from. But I would say he's. I I I wouldn't trust him with my life, but I wouldn't not trust him with my life either. <laughs> Oh, goodness. I think that one of the things that I took from Tanabe's uh, por portrayal of the mural is, again, what we talked about in our regular scheduled uh, HP Love, Love cast, and that is the, the use of, like, Dante's Inferno and using some of those classic... Uh, portrayals of the nine levels of hell. I really got that sense in Tanabe's interpretation uh, in the Mountains of Madness and also in this particular story. I would also say the way that they're presented in Tanabe's work, there's that scene where the protagonist, the explorer, walks into a room and you actually see a full shot of the fresco and the ceiling and everything. And it almost has a, I want to say a, uh, a Mesoamerican flavor to it. It almost makes me think of like Aztecian type art. Uh, I'm not sure why. It, maybe he drew from that. I don't know. It just seems very Mesoamerican looking at it. Yeah, uh, that's actually a good point because um, I hadn't thought, I kept trying to think why it looked somewhat familiar and I think that that's a good, good point. I think uh, his portrayal in this story i would say like the aztec uh calendars mm -hmm. that would be circular and i there's an actual piece and i can't remember the name of it that's in um i think mexico city i think they've got uh one of the aztec uh calendars and it's it's a, a fairly recognizable iconography of that particular culture and i think that's something that he picked up on I also uh, got to thinking a bit about like the Sistine Chapel, that this is a religious moment, this is a, a religious room. Um, did you kind of get that sense as well? Probably so. And it, yeah, I think it's more of because it was showing a lot of the mural on the ceiling. And that's, you know, I'm assuming you usually do that type of artwork in a chapel that has the dome ceilings and so on and so forth, while other institutions would t keep their artwork either on the walls or perhaps maybe some sort of tiled stuff on the ground. So, yeah, I would definitely, uh, yeah, 16 Chapel mixed with Mesoamerican uh, artwork here. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
and a little bit of Dante thrown in there at the at the end when we have the uh, tearing apart of the primitive looking man that uh, definitely makes our narrator a bit on uh, the nervous side when he starts hearing noises and then the wind comes blowing through and he almost gets uh, taken swept up with the wind and down through the portal. On the subject of these frescoes and also religious stuff, I always try to keep an eye out for what I would consider a, a Rene Girardian reading of these texts. And there's something that's actually in the Lovecraft original that's not in Tanabe's, and it's uh, when the explorer is actually exploring the upper city. There's a little passage. He's just kind of like creeping around in all the different buildings and whatnot. He goes into a temple and it says, I shuddered oddly in some of the far corners, for certain altars and stones suggested forgotten rites of terrible, revolting, and inexplicable nature. It made me wonder what manner of men could have made and frequented such a temple. And of course, that's some uh, pretty decent foreshadowing of he's going to have that revealed to him when he's looking at these frescoes of what's truly going to go on. And the the manga actually shows, you know, this depiction, a a scene of an alien race basically butchering humans. And so, again, I kind of keep a a Girardian reading in this type of stuff. These folks are obviously sacrificing people uh, in an effort to do something, hopefully to ward off, you know, know, uh, bloodthirsty violence. Uh, I guess we can take away from it that since the city is crumbling and ruined and abandoned and everyone's kind of retreated down uh, underground, that it wasn't that successful, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah, we we don't really know what happened to this ancient civilization to have any idea of why did they not succeed as as an early civilization, uh, be it alien, be it uh, prehistorical, or something else. One of the things that I have been uh, noticing in our various stories, something that I picked up at the Mountains of Madness and definitely picked up here, is is Lovecraft's use of stories, uh, particularly these early ones, to test out the validity of his uh, mythology against what I would call ideological state apparatuses. Um, This is a a theory that's been posited by Louis Althier, um, where he basically says that um, various apparatuses in our society help to establish um, the, the hegemony of our society. And so I think this is an interesting uh, reading of Lovecraft and his own uh, process to create and establish a mythology as something that could exist out there. He uses academia, uh, he uses pop culture, particularly art and ar- architecture, and he uses religion. Um, and I think this is a, an interesting framework to look at Lovecraft's stories and how he goes about establishing, because we know um, that this is this is something that he is is doing with his stories. He's building off of each one. And so I think it's an interesting interpretation that Lovecraft is picking up on these different apparatuses to establish that mythology. What's also interesting to note is what he's not using. Like he doesn't use films. He doesn't use modernity as a way of really conveying that mythology, he really harkens back to that earlier time, which I think kind of conveys his 
limitations as a writer. I think uh, art, music, and paintings have always kind of been the the backbone of Lovecraft's similes and metaphors. He's definitely eschewed uh, things like film to bring into uh, uh, his stories. In regards to you know uh, laying down his groundwork of you know building institutions, building a mythology, building a, an empire of sorts, uh, it's kind of funny because it runs counterproductive to what a lot of people try to read in the Lovecraft, saying, oh, it's Cosmohari, it can't be understood. These are alien races that even to see them, would go, you'd go mad because how can you even comprehend this stuff? This stuff is so far outside the realm of reality that it's unfantanable. But if you think about it, you know, this lonely guy in Providence conjured up all this stuff. So it's not exactly, you know, that inaccessible. And again, that's just the difference between what you read in the text and versus what we'd actually see in real real life. And I'm pretty sure, you know, a lot of us would change our tune if we looked outside and saw a big, you know, Cthulhu looking uh, over the mountains at us. That That's a good observation, Nick, the fact that at the end of the day, it's Lovecraft. He's in Providence. He's, he's in one little part of the world, and he is basically expanding his own world through this very creative process. Um, talking about creative, um, I'd love to transition for just a moment to Tanabe's artistic visualization of this story. And I think um, I just wanted to make the point that I felt that visually Tanabe's adaptation of At the Mountains of Madness worked really well given his, his very detailed-oriented artistic style. And I do think that in this particular story, I think it was a little bit harder to showcase his talents here because of the constrictive nature of the story, the fact that a lot of it was very dark. Um, so I do think a little bit of his visual style and his abilities were limited. Uh, maybe, again, as we said in, um, or that we observed in at the Mountains of Madness discussion, perhaps if it had been a larger format, um, we would have gotten even more of a sense of that very uh, constrictive environment and even more detail of Tanabe's art style. And with that, we're at the half hour mark, and... Um, I think that we've kind of exhausted uh, all of our main points, so we're going to uh, shift over to upcoming events. We'd like to thank John 316 for allowing us to use snippets of his song, Eternal Sin Offering, from Sinner's Prayer, as our episode's intro and outro music. We feel it uh, complements the uh, subject matter very well, very haunting, very uh, uh, hints of... Uh, Arabian style going on in it. Uh, his album can be found for sale at his Bandcamp page, and you can consult the show notes uh, for that information. Uh, coming up, uh, the Scholars from the Edge of Time podcast will air Thursday, September 24th, and our special guests will be Stephen Lake and Tiffany Caramel Lake, a husband-wife couple who have cosplayed in beloved IPs such as Witcher, Thor, John Wick. Uh, our next episode of the HP Lovecast podcast, which will be episode 32, we'll be discussing two short stories from Gavin Chappell's edited collection, Swords Against Cthulhu, published in 2015 
by Rogue Planet Press. You can pick up a copy of this anthology from Amazon, and hopefully you'll listen to our podcast when it releases on Sunday, October 4th. And HP Lovecast is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com, and of course you can always email us at hplovecast at gmail.com. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books we have either edited or contributed to with individual essay chapters. As always, thank you for listening, and please keep safe and healthy. 